You know, uh, actually, as I was at the Presbytery meeting this last, uh, just a couple days ago, there's a gentleman there from the Presbytery in California. He gets up and he says, um, I just want to start as a resident of California who's not a, a fan of Golden State. I just want to thank the city of Toronto for winning the NBA championship. And the whole, the whole Presbytery lights up. It was, we're like, oh, we love this guy now. At first, we're like, why are you sending us an American? We don't understand. Uh, we just embraced him with open arms after that. It was, it was fantastic. You know, uh, speaking of the Toronto Raptors, I could go out today, buy a Raptors jersey, put it on. Nobody would ask me for an autograph. You know, nobody would mistake me for a Toronto Raptor. I mean, it could be an official jersey. It could be the same. It could be a game-worn jersey. And... Uh, but nobody would ask me for an autograph. There's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, I don't watch a lot of basketball. I jumped on the bandwagon hard, like most of you guys did. And what I noticed was there's not a lot of West Indian-Italian mixed basketball players. I mean, I have not actually met a lot of Italian-West Indian mixed people. Um, it's like those are two cultures that should not have. I don't understand. I don't know why, how, how I ended up here. But the point is, I would not be mistaken simply because I was uh, wearing the jersey. Um, and uh, because it's, it's necessary for a raptor to wear a jersey, but not sufficient to make you a raptor. Necessary to put it on, but not sufficient. And you know, a lot of people, when they think about Christian faith, they think about, oh, well, that's about living a good life and being a loving person and doing all these good things. But, you know, it's necessary as a Christian to put on a lot of things to put on love and good works and generosity. Like, we put on stuff. That's necessary. But that's not sufficient to make us uh, believers. When we look at the book of Acts, which is the, uh, the book that we're studying right now, what we notice is that there is a theme that is dominating uh, New Testament preaching. It's dominating the, the way the apostles are preaching. It's dominating the New Testament letters. And it's that we are saved by Christ's perfection and not our pro- progress. There is progress, but we're not saved by it. There are things we put on, but we're not saved by those things. We put them on precisely because we're saved, precisely because Christ is sufficient. He is enough. His uh, perfect life, his perfect righteous life, his atoning death, his divine resurrection, the fact that the Father vindicated the Son in the ascension, the promise of of his return, those themes, that's the core of the gospel. To be a believer, for those of you here this morning, exploring Christian faith, considering what would it mean for me to trust in this God of the Christian faith, what it means is you come to grips with the fact that there's, there's, you can't put on enough stuff to be accepted by God, but that Christ alone is sufficient, and you put your hope and your trust in him. He is sufficient, and then we are called righteous on the basis of his righteousness. I mean, that's orthodox Christianity. It's the core of the Christian message. But not only is that the message that saved the early church, it's actually the message that empowered them and changed them and reformed them. We see that the the Spirit of Christ does this. Our text today is from Acts chapter 4. And as we look at uh, Acts chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 23 uh, in just a minute. Uh, What we're going to see is this is a time in church history where, for the first time, God is dwelling with his people in a new way. God has always dwelled with his people, but now, by the Spirit, God is dwelling in his people. We, the church, God is with us. God, the Spirit, mysteriously and majestically, that he is in us, doing a real 
powerful, renewing and reforming work in our hearts and our minds. He is in, he is in his church, renewing us, reorienting our affections, changing our taste buds, so to speak, so that the things that we once loved that were sinful, we, don't, we lose our appetite for those things. And he's giving us new taste buds, so to speak, by the Spirit, that we begin to gain affection and love the things that our God loves, loves the things that Jesus loves. And we see this as the Spirit is working in the church with this striking, renewing power. And as I read this text and we open it up a little bit, I pray that you'll be encouraged today because the Spirit is working in you with the same striking, renewing power. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. When Peter and John were released, they went to the other disciples and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats And grant that your servants continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as anyone had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. See, as the early church continually turned to God the Father because of the grace of God the Son, they're continually empowered for life and empowered for ministry by God the Spirit. This is the same church for you and I, as you continually, repeatedly turn to God your Father, only by the grace of God the Son, you are being empowered for life and for ministry by the power of the Spirit, the same Spirit. Now, I'm going to look at this text and open up um, three things for us to consider this morning. And you kids who have your notes, you can follow along, you can fill in the blanks as I give these main these main uh, kind of headings, but here's the three things we're going to look at. Uh, The first thing is that the Spirit drives us to God when adversity tempts us to run from Him. The second thing is that the Spirit quickens God's Word so that its truth silences our fears in the moment. And the third thing is that the Spirit applies the truth of God's Word to our hearts, silencing our fears of the future. 
So let's look at this first thing. Firstly, the Spirit drives us to God when adversity tempts us to run from Him. In the first three chapters of the book of Acts, everything's going great. Church is growing by thousands. Everybody loves the sermons. Wow, yay! It's just like you read the first three chapters, it's great. So they're going from strength to strength. All of a sudden, chapter four hits. Persecution, getting called in, being put on trial, prison, threat of more imprisonment, beatings. And all, everything changes in chapter four for the early church Christians. Everything's not great anymore. And, uh, you know, there's threats going out. You can talk about God, gods, the plural gods. I don't even mention this Jesus name. Everything's changing. For the first time, they're, they're facing this persecution. So what the Spirit of God does is everything around them in the culture is saying, turn from God. Everything around them in, that they're experiencing in their life is saying to them, turn from God. But what the Spirit does in them and does in you is in great adversity causes, drives them deeper into God. And imagine, imagine this, you know, you've got a friend who has a cottage and, um, and they, keep it, they invite you there every summer and you go and you have a great time. And then they sell their cottage and uh, then they say to you, hey, do you want to come over for coffee? And you're like, nah. And then they say, hey, you know, want to maybe go for a walk? It's nice outside. Then you go, eh. And, you know, and then time fades away and you never see that person anymore. They're probably going to think, I'm not sure that they really love me. Or they loved my cottage, right? Think of the book of Job. For 40 chapters, he's railing against God. Why? Because the only way to understand the book of Job, which he's going through suffering, and I'm paralleling that now to the New Testament church suffering, where they've got one or two choices. You're either going to run from him or to him. That's the choice of the New Testament church. Think about Job. I'm summarizing. But the way to understand Job is in, in the first chapter, where the accusation of the devil himself to God is, this guy does not love you. Sky loves what he gets from you. Take his great life away and he will not worship you. He is not a child. He's a consumer. And God's, of course, response to that is, no, he's not a consumer. He's my child. And so what you find for the next 40 chapters in Job, as terrible things are happening to Job, and everything around him is saying, turn from God, is Job, Job is railing and raging and shaking his fist. But notice the direction. It's all to God. Job is actually being driven deeper into God. This is what suffering does in the heart of, of the believer, in the heart of those who Christ is saved by his grace, the Spirit comes to empower by grace, and, and, and this, is what, uh, this is what he does. That in essence, that we have a real love for God. We don't just find God useful. We find him beautiful. That's how Jonathan Edwards used to, used to talk about the difference between dead religion and the gospel. In dead religion, you're just looking for God to be useful. And the moment something in your life happens that goes south, he no longer seems no longer useful. But the gospel, what the spirit of Jesus does in us, is we don't just see God as merely useful. We see him as beautiful. And that's what's happening in the early church here. Everything around them is tanking, and now they're pressing in even more than before. Um, you know, maybe kids, you've had your, maybe one of your parents or a brother or a sister, they go away for a long trip, and maybe they're in another country visiting on holidays or on work or something like that, and they come home, and maybe when you, you hear them come in the front door, you run and you're like, you're home, you're home, you run and you, and what do you do? Do you 
jump up and wrap your arms around them and go, I missed you, I love you? Or do you run and jump and sink your hands into their pockets and go, what did you bring me? What do you have for me? Is that what you do? Probably not. I hope maybe not. I don't know. Maybe there needs to be some confession among some of you young children in here. That No, you don't do that. You don't run and jump and stick your hands in their pockets. You run and jump and you wrap your arms around their neck and you're like, I love you. Because what you, you want, you want, you're seeking their face. And of course, they hug you and they kiss you and they put you down. And then sometimes, sometimes you know, they open their bag and they go, hey, I got you this cool little thing. You know, um, they're happy to give you everything that's in their hands. But really what they want is for you to love and seek their face. And that's what the early church is doing, is they're seeking the face of God. They're not saying, wait a second, we don't seem to see the blessing of your hands, we're out of here. And that's the good news of what the Spirit is doing in you, church, as well, because, by the Spirit. And uh, so I want you to notice their prayer. If you look back at their prayer, if you read their prayer, in fact, if you read all the New Testament prayers, look at this prayer. They just got threatened. They, they just got out of jail, and the threat is, you're going back there. Do this again, you're going back there. And... And what, what does the prayer consist of? Look at the text. They're not praying that the circumstances change. They're not praying that the government changes. They're not praying that the culture changes. In fact, they're not praying that the, situ- the situation changes. They pray that they change. That's their prayer. It's astounding. Not that there's anything wrong with praying for our needs. Jesus, our Lord, put it right in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. The Apostle Paul says, you know, we pray and bring our petitions and supplications before God. Of course it's appropriate to come to God with prayer. But this is an important distinction. They have a relationship with God where they're so seeking their faith, his face. They're so passionate for the truth of the message of the gospel. They're like, Lord, change me. The circumstances are not favorable, but change me in these. This is their prayer. It's powerful. It's, it's, it's incredible. We know that when life is going in and out of okay, the gospel has really gripped our hearts and we are really clinging to, 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 uh, to Jesus uh, when we're saying, oh God, change me. And we all confess there's times where we, we aren't clinging to the gospel. When life goes awry and things aren't good and, and we're tempted to throw our hands up and say, what's the use? What's the point? But we are serving a loving father who loves us not a cosmic genie that grants wishes to us. And it is the powerful work of the Spirit in the early church and the powerful work of the Spirit in you that in times of adversity, the Spirit will drive you more deeply to God when everything around you is saying run from Him. Here's the second thing. So kids, look down at your notes here. Here's the second thing. The Spirit quickens God's Word so that its truth silences your fears in the moment. Notice what's happening is this is an intense situation and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reason for worry, there's a lot of reason for anxiety, all kinds of things. And what, this, what the Spirit does is he's, he quiets the hearts, he dissipates the fears. This is good news for you and I too. Notice how they start their prayer. Sovereign Lord, you know, everything is in his control, they're reorienting themselves. They're actually praying in response to what's going on, right? They don't pray, you know, oh God, zap us with peace and boldness. You know, they, what they actually pray, if you look at it, is it's actually a, a psalm. It's Psalm chapter 2. And they start, they start praying it out. Why do the nations rage? What's going on in the culture? But what have you done, oh God? They take something God's already said and they, they keep on praying it out as it applies to their situation using God's word, 
It speaks to their fear. It speaks to their anxiety. And God is healing their hearts with his own words. God is healing their hearts with what, who he is and what he has said he has already done. They are praying God's words. And the reason why I want us to stop and pause and really consider how powerfully transforming this prayer is, is because they're actually speaking God's words back to him in response, and it's healing them. This is why we meditate on God's word. This is why we read God's word. This is why we encourage our children to meditate on God's word and read God's word, because our life is filled with circumstance after circumstance after circumstance that's going to cause anxiety and fear and worry to rise in our hearts and our minds. And the way for those fears to be dissipated is for us to now respond in prayer to God. And the most powerful way we can do that is to speak in response to what he has already spoken and what he's already said. I'm going to explain it, uh, you know, maybe this way. We've got all these little kids in here. We've got our car seat parking lot at the back there where the car seats are. Okay, these little kids in this room, they're going to learn to speak English. How? They're not going to learn to speak English because English bubbles up from inside them. They're going to learn to speak English because English is going to be constantly spoken to them. They're going to constantly have this word spoken to them. And the more that they constantly hear this word spoken to them, it's going to get inside them. And at some point in their little lives, English is going to come out of them. And the reason why we meditate on the goodness of God's word, and that's what the apostles are going, think about this prayer. Why do the nations rage? They start quoting Psalm 2. It's like this God has spoken, has been speaking. And now what God has spoken about who he is and what he has come to do, and what is, they are now speaking back. They're having a crisis in 33 AD, but their prayer is from 1000 BC. The reason I'm bringing this up it's not because we need to go home and memorize the Bible. I'm not putting a burden on you in that, in that way. Oh my goodness, I'm not going to be able to pray if I, if, I, uh, you know, if I don't know the Bible. Well, I will say this to you. You're going to have so much more peace in your prayer if instead of just praying, oh God, help me, and you're more than welcome to do that. And there are many times, Romans chapter 8, where that's exactly what the Spirit prompts out of us as we kind of cry out like babies because we don't know we don't even have any English words to pray, pray. And so the Spirit prays out of us. But what I want you to notice about this is that as we understand God's word, who he is, what he has done, who Christ is, what he has done, and we begin to pray that back out to God, that's, that's actually what the apostles are doing so that they can have peace in their heart. They're not searching for words to say. What comes out of them is what God has spoken. Say it to you this way. Prayer is, uh, it's communion. It's a, it's, prayer is a conversation and so the way you have a relationship and conversation with people is this somebody sits in front of you and they tell you this meaningful powerful thing about themselves and about their life and they pour their guts out to you what's your response going to be to that are you going to engage with what they just said or are you going to sit there and go mm-hmm 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 Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as soon as the, their mouth stops moving and they are pouring their guts out to you, you go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so do you have $10? Because I've, I'm not, I got to go and feed the meter, right? Like you don't, you, you would be like, what? Did, were you even listening to what I was saying? No, you don't, you wouldn't do that. You would, you would take in what they were saying and then you would say, wow. And you would begin to respond in conversation in relation to what they said. 
God's word is him pouring his guts out, pouring his heart out, telling us who he is because he's too, too big for us to comprehend. So he's given it to us in his word and then he's given it to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus who perfectly exegetes the Father, perfectly interprets the Father. You don't know what God is like. He's too big. He's too cosmic. He's too massive. He's too abstract. You look at Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God has spoken through his word. And so, the, so in prayer, we're quite often responding, wow, to what it is that you have spoken to us. So that's why the apostles, as they come on this hard time, what comes out of them is what God has already spoken about who he is and what he has come to do in the world. And it transforms them and it actually dissipates their fear and it makes them very bold because they begin to see God as very big and they begin to see themselves as very small and they become very, very comfortable in their smallness as they bask in God's greatness, as they pray these words back to him. They don't have a skip the dishes kind of a prayer relationship with God where he's spoken the majesty of who he is and all they have to say in return is, you know, I kind of need this thing and if it could be here in the next half an hour, that'd be really good for me. Thanks. I'm going to put you back in my pocket until I kind of get hungry again. That's not the way that they're relating to him. It's powerful. It's, it's amazing and it's inspiring because it teaches us that this is actually this kind of, you know, prayer that dissipates our fears is available to us and for us. When you look at verse 28, that's what they get into, the crucifixion, what he has done. You know, now that we know this, right, the, you're working things out. It gives them great boldness. They're like, man, when we were looking at the cross, we thought that was the worst possible scenario. But it actually ended up being the best possible scenario. So if our God is that big, and he can take the worst possible scenario and actually by his wisdom and glory make it the best possible scenario, what is it that he is able to do in this, in this scenario in my life? And all of a sudden, there is the rest that comes. My God is working all things out for the good of my salvation and for his glory. He is able to do it. And so he does this, uh, this dissipating uh, work of the, with the, the fear that they're dealing with. Um, you know, J.I. Packer talks about the work of the Spirit as a spotlight ministry. It's like if we were to go out at night and see a glorious cathedral at night and it was lit up by spotlights, we would walk out and we would say, look at the architecture, it's amazing. We probably wouldn't go out and be like, look at those floodlights, those things are doing a heck of a job. Because the because the work of the floodlight is to avert our gaze. And the Spirit has come, and the Spirit has now filled the church, and the Spirit fills you. And you, you who have received the grace of Christ, you are filled with the Spirit so that in those hard times, your gaze can be averted to the goodness of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so for those of you who are here who may struggle with anxiety or worry or oppression, um, I'm sorry, or, or depression. Um, I don't want to be trite here. And I want to encourage you that the, the promises of the Spirit that dissipate the fear, that's for you. You don't read the Bible with an asterisk and be like, well, that's for people who aren't struggling with what I'm struggling with. No, God is with you in your hurt and your pain and your, and your struggle. He's with you. And He, by His Spirit, will guide you through and dissipate your fear and your worry and your anxiety and your pain. He will do it. This is the promise of his word, which is to all of his children. And I want to encourage you with something else for those of you who struggle in this way. Um, being spirit-filled does not mean you're on an emotional high all the time. 
Okay? When you meet Christians who every single time you see them, 100% of the time are always like, hey, how's it going? Okay, there's something about that that's weird. You're like, you're not spirit-filled. You're probably being fake. Because spirit-filled Christians aren't just walking around 24-7, hey, how's it going? If if being spirit-filled meant your mind was perfectly whole all the time, and your emotions were perfectly in check all the time, and your thoughts were perfectly pure all the time, that would be a salvation of works. Because you'd be saying, oh, I'm saved because everything's in line all the time. You're saved by Christ apart from your works. So when you are in that dismal downward spiral struggle, you are every bit as filled with the Spirit as everyone else who's not in that struggle. And I want to encourage you in that, that this promise is for you as much as it is for, for anyone. And the third thing we look at is that the Spirit of God applies the truth of God's Word to our hearts, silencing our fears of the future. So what's going on here is not only are there fears in the moment silenced, but the fears of the future are, the fears of the future are silenced. Right? Because they go out with great boldness. And then there's something else that happens. The, 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 it's actually, and at first it seems like it doesn't belong here. Because there's this radical move of financial generosity. Like they go from this place of radical prayer to next thing you know, people who have houses and lands are selling everything and they're make, saying, make sure, that, make sure that the church survives, that, the, that, the, that the, uh, the preaching of Christ continues, make sure that if there's anyone with need in the community they're cared for. That seems like a bit of a disconnect, but it's actually the same thing because there's a theme here of the Spirit coming and filling the church so that they're fearless, so that they're not dealing with fear. And next thing you know, it works its way out like financial generosity. The gospel has liberated the church from needing to cling to money as future security because as children of God, God is our future security. This whole passage is a passage about the Spirit filling the church to overcome the fear and and of persecution and of the present and of the future, and we see it playing, playing it out here, uh, playing out here. There's this incredible generosity. You know, sometimes we, sometimes we uh, relate to money with greed. So that could be true, right? It could be true that we wouldn't want to give money because we say, "Well, I've got this nice thing I want to spend my money on." That could be true. But I think for most of us, and I'm speaking personally, uh, personally, when I uh, want to hoard my finances. It's not because I'm saving up for this big, beautiful thing necessarily. It's not like a necessarily a greed thing. It's fear. Right? It's like, well, I, if I give this, then what about... Yeah, it's worry. It's financial security. It's what about 10 years, 20 years? What about the retirement plan? It's waking up every day and staring at spreadsheets and going, eh, how is this all going to work out? Fear. Look at what the Spirit does in the church. They go and they sell their stuff. Don't worry, the application of today's sermon isn't going and selling your home. So in light of this, no, um, that's not where this is going. But I want you to see how liberated they are. I want you to see how free they are. The Spirit has freed them, not only of the fear of the moment, the persecution, you're going to go to prison, but the fear of the future. They're like, our life is in God's hands. The most important thing we have is the gospel, and the gospel must be perpetuated. And they sell their things with a a radical, scandalous, gospel-shaped generosity it's incredible when you look at verse 31 it says that the whole place was shaken as they come to this prayer and there's this shaking is consistent we see in the presence of God throughout all of scripture 
When God comes down on Sinai, there's an earthquake. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the temple, there's an earthquake. In Judges chapter 5, Deborah sings and metaphorically singing about this, this earthquake. There's always these, these shakings going on in the Old Testament. And whenever you've got these passages conveying this divine God is greater, coming in contact with humanity who's lesser, there's a shaking. But here, the Spirit of God comes and his people don't shake. The Spirit of God comes and he's making them unshakable. There's a theologian from the early church named Chrysotome who said it this way. The more that the place was shaken, the less that the Christians were shaken. Why is that? Why throughout biblical history, whenever God comes and the presence of God comes and shakes, the people cower, but here the presence of God comes and everything shakes and the people are emboldened? Why is that? Well, because when Christ was on the cross, there was an earthquake, there was a shaking. When Christ was raised on the third day, the empty tomb, there was an earthquake, there was a shaking. On the cross, Jesus was shaken under the judgment of God to reunite you with God so you could be filled and be made unshakable by the Spirit of God. Jesus was shaken under God's judgment so that you and I become unshakable by God's grace. Increasingly, continually, more and more. You see how the, throughout the book of Acts, they don't just stay in a state of unshakable. So don't, some of you came, like I did, out of a theology of glory where you would interpret the sermon like, and now we're unshakable. And it's kind of like a man of steel situation where we just kind of ground pound and we fly up and we just live unshakable lives. No, no, no. Notice in the book of Acts, the church is continually, and they were filled, and they were filled, and they were filled, and they were filled. There was a need for like a continual filling, not because they kept being empty of the grace of God, but because there was a need for a continual emboldening and empowering for life, just like you and I, facing things every week and needing this, being unshakable by the Spirit of God. The writer C.S. Lewis, he illustrated this in his Narnia series, calling it the deep magic that there was a cracking as the table broke, as the great Aslan was killed in, his, in, in the, the chronicles of Narnia, and that death itself was cracking, that death, the disintegrator, was being disintegrated by Christ. Death itself meets its death in Christ. And this is why, Redeemer, in circumstances that are demanding you be shaken, you can be unshakable. Not because you're great, but because Christ is, and we are united to him. Not by your willpower, but because you're children of God and he's emboldening you by the Spirit's power. And so the Spirit drives us to God when adversity tempts us to run from him. The Spirit applies the truth of God, silences our fears in the moment. And the Spirit continually applies the truth of God, silencing our fears of the future. Let's pray.